Helen will be right outside these doors afterwards. They've got uh, a booth set up there and some information that you may want to follow up. We wanted to take that kind of time out of a Sunday morning service and share that because if you realize the themes of hope and adoption are very biblical. It is a part of your relationship. If you know Jesus Christ, then you've been adopted. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, to as many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God. He has adopted us spiritually into his family. So thank you so much, Helen and Barb, for being with us. Thank you for partnering in these ways. We knew that this is not for everybody, but you can be a part of supporting this. You can be a part of praying for this. And not every family will foster, not every family will adopt, not every family needs to do those things, but you can be a part of it. And we want to support the family that are involved. By the way, our church is involved in foster support each and every month. Uh, we have a group that meets. You have to have continuing education hours, and you can talk to Scott and Amy Alexander about that. They are the liaisons here, and you might want to come and see what goes on there. Well, we are appreciative of all that's going on. I want to invite your attention to John chapter 8 this morning. We are in week two of our I Am series. And as we transition into this in our thinking, I really want you to go there with me for a moment. We're looking at the I am statements of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. We're walking slowly through this Gospel book, and we've called this series Jesus in His Own Words. And the idea is very simple. As we walk through this, as we look at Jesus, we want to focus not just on what He did, but we want to focus on who He is. And the reason that we want to do that is because the more that we get an understanding of who Christ is, we'll never be the same. It is transformational for you and for me to understand who Christ is, to get a glimpse at him. So John chapter 8, and I want to invite you to do something. If you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 12, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more. And he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. The Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and I know from uh, where I'm going, but you do not know this about me. Let's pray together. God, would you add understanding and blessing to the reading of your word that your hearers would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Very quickly, let me set some context. Jesus is in the temple, and he is sitting down, and he is teaching and here a huge crowd is around him. That's going to be significant in a moment as you understand why these things are happening the way they're happening. In the midst of this, Jesus sitting in the temple, huge crowd, he says, I am the light of the world. It's another one of those I am statements. He's identifying himself as God. He's identifying himself as Messiah. And while he's speaking, somebody speaks back. Somebody challenges him. Now, he is speaking. He's teaching. And you would say, how rude. Somebody shouts out. It's an awkward moment. They challenge him. It says that the Pharisees say to him, you're testifying about yourself. That's not valid. You can't make 
those claims. This is nothing short of calling Jesus a liar. Jesus is teaching, and they say, hey, wait a minute. You can't do that. I mean, again, how awkward would that be? You can't make that claim, not without witnesses. It's not true. How uncomfortable. I mean, this is literally a, hey, you need to sit down and shut up, Jesus. Now I've got your attention. How awkward would it be this morning if somebody stood up in this place and said, hey, Scott Hanbury, you're a liar. You can't make those kind of claims. i tell you why it would be awkward, because I'm hoping that one or two or five of my deacons would walk up to you and they would kindly cart you out the door. All right, And then it would be really awkward because we would all watch you on the way out. And you say, well, our deacons probably wouldn't do that. Well, I'm hoping that Scott and Wes would stand up and they would have their pastors back and they would come. If nothing else, I hope Jimmy would throw a drumstick at you, right? I mean, he would just say, you're not going to talk about my pastor that way. But if you stood up and challenged me and said, no, it would be awkward for all of us. And the reason I share that, it was awkward then. Jesus is teaching and he says, I am the light of the world. Follow after me and you will not walk in darkness. He says, you follow after me and I will lead you to life. And they said, nope, that is not true. Something's going on here, something deeper. I mean, why would they be so angry, so rattled, so incensed that Jesus would say what he said and it would cause them to want to blurt out in response? So we're going to see this together. There is something deeper. So let's address this in just a minute, what was said, but let me kind of get to the why. First, who is Jesus speaking to? Who is he talking to? It says, now Jesus spoke to the people again. Who are the people? What was happening just before this? There was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they dragged her into the presence of Jesus and they threw her down right in the front of him. And here in just a moment, he says, I am the light of the world. I mean, you talk about somebody that's living in darkness. This isn't hearsay. They caught them in the act. Now, we know that by the law, the man and the woman that were committing adultery should have come to the place of judgment. They could have stoned them both, but they were trying to trap Jesus. And so they grabbed the woman. She was uh, disposable to them, and they throw her in front of the Lord, trying to trap him and to get him to say pointedly that she needed to be stoned. They caught her in the act. They bring her before Jesus, testing him, it says in verse 8. And Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the ground. I've always speculated and wondered. He may have written out the names of their sins. He may have written out the, the others in the crowd that perhaps had been with this woman. I don't know what they, he was writing there. But all of the sudden, their own sin moved them out of the stone-throwing business because they dropped them one by one when Jesus rose and said, He who among you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he said to her, go and sin no more. I mean, the one who could have thrown stones, the only one that had room to judge, forgave her and said, go and sin no more. And they slowly began to walk away. And then verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them once more. And he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Well, let's get a little more context. That's who he was speaking to. Where was he? The Bible says in verse 20, that he was in the treasury. Jesus spoke to the treasury. If you'll go to the next slide, we'll see verse 20. It says, Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. 
The treasury was technically called the court of the women. It was the largest area, the exterior perimeter of the temple complex. The very biggest crowd would be there, the largest majority. Obviously, women could not go too far into the temple. Gentiles could not go much farther into the temple. But the court of the women, the treasury, was a large gathering spot. And this large gathering spot was a place where there would be a huge crowd. Now, the reason that that's important is because there's a huge court that they brought this woman in front of Jesus in front of. It's also significant that there's such a large crowd here at this time. So when Jesus is there with all of these people, why are there so many people? Maybe you never thought about this. Maybe you say, well, there's always lots of people. I want you to get something significant. I don't want you to ever, ever miss this because this statement is very pointed. Jesus had come to the temple along with all of the men of Israel from all over the country to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody say the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, the word is Sukkot in Hebrew. Say Sukkot. Sukkot literally means booth or tent. It is the feast of tents, the feast of booths. And it is a celebration that God gave the people and they would actually construct little tents and they would live in them for seven days. They still do this today. If you were to go to high-rise apartment complexes in Jerusalem, they would build a tent on the balcony and they would go and they would live there. And it's a celebration. It's a joy-filled time. You say, what does this have to do with anything? I want us to connect some dots today that I really think will get your mind pumping. This was the most public place in one of the most public times. Now, let me show you Leviticus 23. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. You may want to jot it down. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in chapter 23, God spoke to Moses, and he said these words, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are my appointed times, the times of the Lord that you will proclaim sacred assemblies. Everybody look this way. God laid out special holidays, holy days, once a week, a Sabbath, once a month, a new moon celebration. Seven times in the year, starting in the spring and going all the way to the fall, you're going to celebrate feasts or festivals, and those are my appointed times because the focus is God. He said, I want my people to remember. These festivals are tying a string around your finger to say, remember, don't forget, don't forget. And this one is the seventh festival. It's the last of those, the very last one in the fall of the year. The harvest has come. The wheat and the olives and the grapes have all been harvested. And now we're going to celebrate God's provision. And we're going to celebrate by remembering the 40 years in the wilderness. And in that wilderness time, God provided for us everything we needed. He gave manna. He gave water. He gave to our people his guiding presence at the tabernacle. And so we will celebrate the tabernacling of God, the dwelling of God with his people. This is why it's so interesting. Leviticus was written a long time before it actually began. And all of these festivals had been prescribed by God so that they would get, begin to see, I need to pay attention to him throughout my year. Why does that matter? Because a couple of thousand years after this, Jesus emerges on the scene and he, as a Jew, would do like everybody else. You see, out of seven festivals, 
three times a year, every single person in in Israel came to Jerusalem to worship. These are called pilgrimage festivals. And if you were to read Leviticus 23, you'd see it. He would say, on these days, you come. This was a seven-day period, so there are literally tens of thousands of people that have gathered in the courtyard of the women and have gathered around the temple, have gathered in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. Now, if I haven't lost you yet, I hope that you'll hang on just a little further. All I'm saying is God said, these are important days for you to worship me. Watch this. In Deuteronomy 16, it says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place where he chooses. You can read on through the rest of that later. It's, it's uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16. I just want you to see that these pilgrimage festivals are a big deal. So a huge part of ancient Israel's worship and their holy living was proper observance of all of these festivals. Well, what is this Feast of Tabernacles? Everything has been harvested, and now we celebrate. Now, for those seven days, people live in these booths just like they did in the wilderness. And the Lord himself had told the people, I will dwell with you. And that word dwell is tabernacle. He said, Moses, build me a tent, and I'm going to live there. God is not in a box. We can't put God in a box, but God said, my glory will emanate from the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark is inside the tabernacle, and every single day there was fire that shot up at night, and there was a pillar of cloud by day. The glory of God radiated. Light was a big deal. And they followed. Anytime the glory began to move, they moved with it. And for 40 years, God guided and guarded his people. If you were an enemy of God, you were scared to death to see that fire because you said their God is with them. Now, let's move forward. What happened in this festival? They were celebrating that time period. There were two major illustrations, if you will, of celebration. One was light and one was water. You see, God had provided water from the rock, and he had guided them by light. So this is a big deal, and I don't want you to miss it. The Feast of Tabernacles began with an illumination of the temple. Every night for seven nights, it took place in the treasury where Jesus is teaching. They lit these huge lamps. This is sort of a mock-up of what it would look like. And the temple sat up on top of the temple mount. And so when they illuminated it, it illuminated all of Jerusalem. I just kind of am overwhelmed with the thought that I could stand on the Mount of Olives across and see it lit up in all of its splendor and glory. Some of you that have not been there may can identify with this. You ever been in Orlando and when sun sets and the evening sky gets dark, everybody moves to Main Street on Disney's property or they move to the lake. Why? Because there's going to be a laser light show and there's going to be an electric parade and there'll be fireworks and we want to see it. Well, everybody from all of Israel would gather around and the priest would begin to light 
torch after torch after torch, and it would illuminate the sky all throughout Israel. And the illumination, we would celebrate, and we would say, our God did this in the wilderness. Our God moved in a powerful way. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, God gave a very visual, clear picture. Now, on day one of the festival, the priest went down to the pool of Siloam, and they gathered up enough water for the entire week, and they went up to the temple with all of this water, and every day they would pour water on the altar, and smoke would rise even more from that. On the seventh day, the climax, the great day of this celebration, they would march around the altar seven times, and they would pour water. That's significant too. Hang on. I just want you to see, who is Jesus speaking to? Those that have accused this woman. Where is he? In the court of the Gentiles, in the court of the women, the treasury, where the vast majority of people would be. When is he there? Right smack dab in one of the highest, holiest festivals in all of Israel, where there would be literally hundreds of thousands around and tens of thousands right in the immediate area. At a dramatic moment when the torches were lit, the, the laser and the lights and the fireworks from that day went, the people would give a shout during the darkness of Exodus. They would shout and sing and dance with joy in the night. The lights from those torches would light up everything. That's why it's called the Feast of Lights as well as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, imagine the scene. In the atmosphere of lights, where all of that's going on, we're celebrating 40 years of darkness, and up walks Jesus into the middle of that, and he's standing there. And suddenly glancing up at all of those bright lights and all of those torches and all of these menorah, these candlestick, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. It's as if God is saying through Jesus, God's presence was a pillar of fire for Moses and our forefathers, and now the pillar of his presence is standing right before you. That ought to make a dried up Baptist want to shout. I mean, all of the people have gathered. The temple is lit up in splendor and glory in gold and majesty. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Some of y'all are going to get happy with me and get on this side a little bit. I just want to shout right now. You better put your pew belt on. That's just the start. I, I, I don't know if this does anything for you, but it blows me away. I, I think about the imagery of light here. These torches, Jesus is saying, they'll be extinguished in seven days. My light will never go out. <laughs> My life will never be snuffed out. Now, I don't have too much time to go deep into this, but if you're a Jew, if you're a Pharisee, you know the law. Light goes all the way back to Genesis 1. What was going on? The spirit was hovering over the darkness. It was formless and void. And what brought the light? The word of God. Let, help me, say it with me. Let there be And what happened? Light. And the formless became formed. And the darkness was dispelled. But it was the word that did it. 
Now, what is it that John starts out his gospel by calling Jesus? In the beginning was what? The Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. You know what Jesus is saying here in the court of the women in the temple during the Feast of the Tabernacles? He's saying, I was there. I was there when the Word came forth, and I was there when the light burst into existence. He says, I know where I came from. I was there. He's saying, I am the active agent of creation. I am the alpha and the omega because I know where I'm going. Oh, that we had time to go through this, but where is he going? Revelation 21 give you a pretty good idea. He said, I saw a city and in that city, there was no need for sun or moon. Look, I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city has no need for sun or for moon. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb, what? Is the light. Woo! (laughs) Jesus said... I am the light of the world. In the midst of that environment, I'm the light of the world. Some of you need to understand who Jesus is because that will change everything about who you are. Jesus said, I am. I am. He's giving the covenant name Jehovah that God had spoken to Moses in the burning bush. In one sentence, everything is powerfully changed. Structure becomes the norm, not formlessness. Jesus is making claims that are so unacceptable to these Pharisees. They've connected light so much to God. In the wilderness, God showed, but the word made flesh. Now, seeing Christ face to face illuminates everything. Jesus is saying rightfully, I have the power to transform. So the illumination of the temple is just the first of the ceremonies. The other one is water. Let me just read this to you. It's an account that was given during that day. On the first morning of tabernacles, a procession of priests go down to the pool of Siloam to bring up to the temple a golden container of water sufficient for the week's ceremony. The shofar was blown and the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the feast waved palm branches as the priest carried the water around the altar. This is called the great Hallel. It's Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They read all of those five Psalms as they're walking in procession with water up to the temple. What a beautiful picture. On the very last day of the great feast, the water libation reached its climax as the priest circled the altar seven times and poured it out. This is called the Hoshana Rabbah. Let me, let me show you. That sounds like I'm speaking in tongues. It's just Hebrew. It's the great praise. And the great praise is the great Hosanna. We sing that word all the time, but so Hosanna simply is save now. They were saying, God, save now. You've provided water. You've provided light. We wave our palm branches as we go together and we celebrate. And by the way, as Jesus makes this claim, I am the light of the world, it's not his first bold claim. If you backed up one chapter and look at chapter 7, In the middle of them carrying water, I just see water splashing and sloshing around and all of the people cheering and all of the people praising and all of the people singing Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 and all of a sudden Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are thirsty 
and I will give you drink. In fact, let's just look at it. It's in chapter 7. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted above the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, I love this, the text is, is clear. He was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. All of this is predictive. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is a prophet that we've been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David. What do we know that they don't? Where was he born? In the city of David. From the tribe of Judah. The house and lineage of David. So the crowd was divided about him. Some wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. He's yelling in the middle of this festival, don't look to that water, look to me. And he speaks up boldly declaring, I am the light of the world. You walk in me and you will not stumble in darkness, but you will walk in light forever. Let me get to my message. That was the introduction. Really quickly. Let's talk three things. The reality of his claim. Number one, his claim was authoritative. His claim was authoritative. I am speaks to his divinity. The light of the world speaks to his ability. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I love this. I know where I came from. I was there at creation. Before anything was, I am. I know where I'm going. I will be there at the consummation of the kingdom. I will be coronated as the eternal king. I will dwell with my people forever. I will tabernacle with anyone who will come. You don't have to walk in darkness. Why? Because I'm here and I'm the light of the world. Number two, his claim was all-encompassing. I love this. He said, I am the light of the world. He didn't say, I'm the light of this feast. I'm the light of this temple. He didn't say, I'm the light of Jerusalem. He didn't say, I'm the light of the land of Israel. He didn't say, I'm the light of the Jewish people. He said, I am the light, help me out, church, of the world. His claim makes him inescapable. And I'm gonna pull over for a minute here. We need to spend just a moment. His claim is inescapable. Psalm 139, 11 and 12 says that there is no place we can go to escape the presence of the Lord. You can go to the highest heaven or the lowest hell and his eyes are there. Nothing is hidden from God. L let me just say this to you and I'll, I'll ask this pointedly. I, I heard a pastor named Matt Chandler ask this question of his congregation. I don't know if any of you feel real cocky spiritually. Maybe you do. You know, maybe you say, hey, I, I've got it down and people should just look at me. I don't think we got too many people that would volunteer that way. Some of you, you know, if you're at a place in your life where you say, hey, this is what I do, even when people aren't asking you what you do, that's a problem. But let me just challenge you on this. If you get to the place where you're kind of poking your chest out a little bit and, and broad-shouldered thinking you got it all together, would you still be that way if we took all of your thoughts for the last week and we put them up on this screen. 
I mean, every one of your lusts, every one of your bursts of anger, every potential lie, words that you wanted to say, but even if you held it in and didn't say it, but you thought, we just showed, would you watch that movie with us? I would just imagine that if that was the case and I was the feature film of the day, I would probably slide out the back door because I don't want everybody to know, but guess what? There are no secrets with God. You know why? He is the light of the world. He knows everything. He exposes every dark part of your heart. And he knows you. And he is clear about that in his word in telling us if you catch yourself in this way with recognizing somehow you are getting away with something, you have no secrets from God. You get away with nothing, not in your mind, not in your heart, not in your thoughts, not in your actions. Let me just read this psalm to you, this portion. He said, I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. He's like, even if I could wait till two in the morning and act like a ninja and sneak around, God still sees it. God still knows it. God still is aware of it. God still judges it. And he's saying there are no secrets. He says to God, to you that night shines as bright as day and darkness and light are the same to you. We cannot get away with anything. That shouldn't be depressing. If we read it in light of the rest of Scripture, God knows you and he loves you still. God knows you and he loves you warts and all. God knows you when you foul up. God knows it when you disappoint. God knows it when you are selfish in your activity with other people. God knows where we are. And you ought to be comforted in that. And Jesus, in the midst of this trial of this woman, says to her with forgiveness in his heart, go and sin no more. He saw the sin, but he didn't call her by her sin. He calls her by her name and he loves to her. And he points out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who think, well, we're better than she is. Church, if we're going to make a difference in the world, we need to get off our spiritual high horse. Quit thinking that we're perfect. We just recognize that in the eyes of God, he sees and knows everything there is to know, and we would trust him, and we would walk in him. Jesus said, come to me, and if you'll come to me, you will not walk in darkness. You're not getting away with anything. There's no place to hide. You cannot camouflage yourself from God. So what I would say to you this morning very quickly is come clean with yourself. Recognize that God is omnipresent. Recognize that God is omniscient. He knows. What's the result of his claim? Let's look very quickly. He forms that which is formless. He takes broken, messy, empty, formless things and he shapes and he guides. What did he do in the wilderness? He guided them and gave them structure and hope. What did he do in Genesis? He spoke, let there be light, and form came from formlessness. In the 1600s, a group of theologians got together and they put together a, a catechism. And a catechism is nothing more than just a, a summary of doctrine. And they asked the question, what is the chief end of man? We ask that question all the time. You said, Pastor, I've never asked what is the chief end of man. Yes, you have. Here's how you've asked it. What is this all about? <laughs> Why am I here? What is the point of this crazy, messy Life. You see, it's formless without God, but when the light of the world comes into it, there's hope. Here's what they said, and you probably know it. I want you to read it with me. Man's chief end, let's read it together. Man's chief end is to glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. I, I like a little modification that happened to this. John Piper and a few other pastors got together and they changed it. Now that's okay. This isn't the Bible. It's a catechism. If they were changing the Bible, we'd have problems. But here's what they said. Read this one with me. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I love that. They just said, if we'll enjoy God, we will glorify him. And the beauty is, it's not that we will glorify him and enjoy him, but we will glorify him by enjoying him. What does that mean, pastor? How in the world do I enjoy God forever? Here's how. You order your life around his commands that lead you into the fullest possible life. You submit yourself to him. You say, he knows everything. I'm coming clean. God, I'm coming to you. And that's what Jesus said. Number next, I want you to see this. Not only does he form the formless, he illumines that which is in darkness. He guides and he guards. I love this from scripture. It says that when we become Christians, we are transported from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If you're not a Christian, you're walking in spiritual blindness today. If you're not a Christian today, you're stumbling around through the dark. You're trying to navigate life without knowing ultimate reality. If you're not a Christian here today, if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've not stepped into the light, then you don't even know if you're going in the right direction. And I can promise you, ultimately you're not because you can't get there from here without him. And as we think about this, here we've, we've gotten up in, um, in a place where stumbling is the norm, and so we just think that's what everybody, well, life's just hard. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and stubbed your toe in darkness? Can I get a witness? I could carry this on. Anybody in the dark ever stepped on a Lego? That'll bless your life. You remember when I said, God hears what you think? Well, he heard what you said when you stepped on that Lego or when you stubbed your toe. All of that pain could have been avoided. How? Turn on a light, <laughs> a nightlight, a lamp, your phone, something. The same is true for life. Just as physical light provides external illumination that keeps us from ramming our toes into bed corners and coffee tables, the word of God, Jesus, illuminates our souls and gives to us direction. Spiritual light is insider awareness that helps guide those who are living in the light of Christ. And when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me or comes to me will never walk in darkness, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit is given to us, awakens our hearts to truth. He guides us. He informs and shapes our mind. He takes what's formless and forms it. It's a process of discipleship, and we're always in that process, and it fuels our response. Let me just finish. What is the response to Jesus' claim? Here he is in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights, boldly declaring, I am the light of the world. What's your response? You can receive him, or you can reject him. You say, well, I'm not ready to make a choice. You just made a choice. If you choose not to choose, you've chosen. Does that make sense? You can't ignore or deny him. He is the light of the world. He is the one who said, come to me and you'll never thirst again. 
Very simply, are you looking for some guidance in your life? Because you can run from God, but you can't hide from God. He doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on a cross. And my sin was judged there, and I'm so thankful. But the Bible is clear. If you'll come to him, he'll save you. If you'll come to him, he'll forgive you. If you'll come to him, he will give you eternal life. If you're longing for guidance this morning, he is the light of life. Now, what's the application for a message like this? It's very, very simple. If you need to be saved, walk out of the darkness and into the light. And if you're walking in darkness, the Bible says, he who covers sin will never prosper. He who confesses and forsakes sin, he will find forgiveness. Today, maybe you just need to say, Lord, you see it already. I'm not, you're not informing, hey, God, I lied on Tuesday. God, I lusted on Saturday. God, I cheated on Friday. No, he knows those things. Confession is agreement. God, I know what I did is wrong. It breaks your laws. It breaks your heart. And I want to come clean today and just trust you. I want to come to Jesus and drink. I want our musicians to come. Our encouragers will come. If you're new to Hardy Street, we're only going to take a moment to do this. We're going to sing through one simple song. And as we sing, you let God have his way. We have a group of people that station themselves right over here to my left, to your right. And we call them encouragers. They're just prayer partners. They would love to sit down with you and pray for you, to listen to you, and to encourage you in some way. So why don't you today come? Maybe you need to unite with this church. Today is our celebration Sunday. You see in the bulletin those that have joined over the last month, and we celebrate that. Maybe you would want to unite with our church and be a part of what God is doing here at Hardy Street. You come as we sing. Let's stand together now.